This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Let me ask an important question. Are you looking for ways to earn extra income? Interactive Brokers Stock Yield Enhancement Program lets you earn extra income on fully paid shares of stock in your brokerage account. And here's how it works. You allow IBKR to borrow shares from you in exchange for collateral, either U.S. Treasuries or cash, and they lend those shares to traders who want to sell them short, and IB pays you interest to borrow them. Each day that your stock is on loan, IBKR pays you 50% of the income it earns from lending the shares. Other brokers with similar programs generally don't disclose the market rates to you, which allows them to pay you a small piece of the pie while holding on to most of the profits. For transparency, you'll see the interest rate that you are being paid on the collateral value along with the amounts earned by IBKR from lending those shares. The process is simple and automatic. IBKR manages all aspects of share lending. Open an interactive broker's account today and start earning extra income. Learn more at ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Hey, there's no stopping a speeding freight train. A rising tide rises all chips, and boy, did they rise. Inflation's still an issue, and the Fed trying to talk down markets. Not really working. And our guest today is Larry McMillan, an expert on options. All this and much more on episode number 857 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. And welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This is Andrew Horowitz, and thanks for joining me this week. And every week as we go through all ways and all sorts of, you know, discussions to try to make sure that you are in the know when it comes to finance and get the most accurate information available about what's going on to help you on your way, of course, towards financial security. That's the goal that we have to get you in a situation that you are comfortable, not worried, not saying, hey, where's my next dollar coming from? Because it's a long ride, folks. You know, when we're talking about 30, 40, 50 years into the future, and with the advent of the modern medicine that is out there now, we're going to be living a long time. Fact is that there's no longer a retirement plan where we say, hey, you know what, you're going to work till 65, and you're probably going to die at, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years into your retirement. People are living longer. We need to save more, and we are responsible for it, and we have to optimize the way in which we do so. Put him under the, under the mattress, in the sofa, or in a safe is not the best way to save. No, you know that. So uh, that's an important issue that we need to really focus in on. The other thing that I want to mention next week coming up, Steve Sanders from uh, Interactive Brokers. He's the uh, senior vice president there. We're going to talk about some really neat things, and we got some other guests coming up in the weeks ahead as well. So good things happening, and pretty excited to uh, bring all those to you. I want to spend a couple of minutes before we talk with our guests, which will really uh, probably fine-tune this discussion, because there's been a lot of con concern over, wow, markets are high, really high. Too high? I don't know. But a lot of people are thinking that they're concerned about how high is it going to go and you know how much more can it go, and if it is anything about some of the some of the data points that were put out last week with regard to the idea that when we've seen a 3% day with a 90% participation rate and on this and that usually leads to a, you know, a rollover. Now, so far that's not happening and we haven't seen the signs of that just yet. And we saw some crazy moves, of course, last week. Um, and, and actually just, just, just recently, right. It just happened with NVIDIA. So that's something that's an important discussion to have. We'll have that also, um, you know, how that move with NVIDIA 
is moving markets right now. And I think that when we look at all of this and we think about how to hedge, that you know, there are certain things that you can do and certain things that maybe you shouldn't do. Some of the things you, you, you should do maybe are looking into things like, you know, small items like trimming positions. I'll give you an example. Uh, this week into that uh, position, you know, we looked at, wow, it's about time to start considering looking at trimming some of our NVIDIA position that we have for our client portfolios over on the TD Managed Growth Strategy. Why? Because it reached a level of percentage participation in, in the portfolio. In other words, how much um, of the portfolio is dedicated towards just NVIDIA? And we said, you know what? It's enough. It's not just something that's subjective. It's something that we have a rule of it can't be more than X. We have to cut it back. And that's what exactly, you know, is going to happen. So with that, there's also other things that you can do. For example, you can utilize options. Who are options for? Who uh, aren't they for? What is the best use of them? What option to use? Do you use covered calls? Do you use puts? Do you use some other kind of more intricate mechanism and strategy in the option space? Well, it's all up to you. I can tell you that when it comes to hedging, when it comes to looking to protect downside, there's a number of really good ways that you can do things. There's some very poor ways to do things, like using some uh, of the of the um, some are good, some are bad. Um, using some ETFs that really have degradation of the overall value that that happens just on a regular basis. In fact, some of these are just great shorting instruments on their own. They just de degrade. It's just a natural process uh, on a regular basis. They degrade, but using them for a short time period to hedge, going short a particular market, an index, not a commodity because those are really troubling when we deal with uh, those ETFs that are levered that utilize certain futures that have contango or that are um, any kind of a rolling future is, is a real problem. And the reason for that is that the pricing is a problem uh, because you're going to get beat up every single time they roll, usually, usually. And uh, when we focus on the ETFs, you know, you have to focus on which ones do I want to use. You know, you just simply go short the S&P 500, short the Qs. That's a one-to-one -one ratio. Now, obviously, if you want to offset some of the risk, you have to make sure that you match your risk. That's another issue, matching the risk to your portfolio. If you have a portfolio of all utilities, trying to hedge out and go short the Qs makes no sense. You want to make sure you are in line with the particular investments that you have, you know, in, in the portfolio, obviously. So options are another play, of course, that we mentioned, and I'm going to talk to Larry about in depth. But the option market is a way for you also to get, get leveraged hedging potentially when it's time, if it's time, on a one-on-one -on -one basis from a stock standpoint or from an index standpoint. So a broad-based hedging standpoint, you could use options. You could drill down to an individual stock as well and hedge out some of that, or enhance through an, um, a, an equity uh, income overlay type of option strategy called like a cover calls or a combination of covered calls and puts and things like that to give you both sides. There's a lot of things that you could do right now. Markets aren't really necessarily telling you that, you know, there's something that is rotating out dramatically. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't see all of a sudden in the next week or so this terrible move to the downside. But yes, Things are overbought, but things can stay overbought for a long time. The market dynamic that is going on right now is a lot of FOMO, a lot of, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Let me invest right now. I don't really buy the whole cash on the sidelines discussion, but what's happening is that we're seeing a significant amount of optimism. That is not something you want to necessarily bet against at the moment until you see the turn. So that's something to think about. So hedging is an option opportunity or even some ETFs, some shorting, um, even some sell stops on your portfolio or or limit upside, um, you know, where you take some and trim. So we'll talk all about that. Before we get to our guest, I want to mention Interactive Brokers because Interactive Brokers clients earn up to 4.83% on their uninvested, instantly available USD cash balances. In fact, you need to ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Interactive Brokers Prudent and Conservative Risk Management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you far higher interest. 
And that's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Rates subject to change. Visit ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more. And our guest today is Larry McMillan, author and expert on option trading. And he's been a professional options trader for years and years and years, and perhaps probably the best known as the author of Options as a Strategic Investment, the best-selling work on stock and index option strategies, which sold over 300,000 copies. So he's an active trader for his own account, also manages options-oriented accounts for certain individuals. Um, he uh, does uh, research, writing, teaching, education. He uh, writes The Daily Strategist, a derivative product newsletter. It's called The Option Strategist and The Daily Strategist, which is a derivative products newsletter covering equity and uh, index options, futures options, and he speaks and options strategies all over the place throughout the world. So we are very pleased to have the opportunity to um, welcome Larry. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Andrew. How are you doing? Good. It's been a long time. It's been a long, long time, but I'm glad to have you back. So sure. one of the things that we know that things uh, change over time, but they really don't change, but yet they come in different packages. Options is an interesting thing. It's been it's been around for a long time. I want to start out this discussion first uh, and set the stage, baby. First, I want to know more about how, how you actually got interested in this. But I also want to make sure that we're talking about this with our audience today um, with the understanding that a lot of people find options terribly confusing, which is really good for the people that know a lot about options so that they can price it appropriately, right? So yeah, um, yeah. so there's kind of, you got that going on. But um, let's go way back in the Wayback Machine and talk about how you got into this business to begin with. It was sort of interesting. I was actually uh, in grad school at the University of Colorado and the uh, Denver Broncos would sell uh, occasionally tickets to the game. So I was standing in a line. It was a huge line. I always joked the line was a mile long and a mile high. In <laughs> right. And I popped in this bookstore and grabbed some book. Uh, just said, you know, how to get rich or something. And I started reading. It was about convertible bonds, actually. It was actually a serious book, which got me interested in derivatives. And so I started, you know, educating myself on those, uh, trade a little bit of over-the-counter options, and then uh, the next year the CBOE opened. So uh, I was uh, I was actually trading options before the CBOE opened. But uh, you know, and back in so. those back in those days, there was a lot. Obviously, a lot. Well, there was nobody really. People were doing it, of course, but it was it was almost as I, I would equate it to like private option deals back then before the CBOE. Right? It was very thin. And yeah. much pricing spreads were much greater. Right. And, you know, people didn't. Uh, well, the Black-Scholes model really uh, was invented, I guess, in 72, published in 72. But it didn't really gain a foothold, I would say, probably for another couple of years after that. So the old put-and-call dealers in New York, they, they were pretty good at valuing options, but they kind of just did it by the seat of their pants. You know, they didn't have a model per se. It was all just percentages. So that there were some definite opportunities in those things, uh, discrepancies between the volatility of the actual stock and the implied volatility and the options. Hmm. But uh, you know, it, it was very thin market, and yep. you couldn't sell. You you bought an option, you either had to sell it to close it, uh, or basically exercise it and sell the stock to close it. Yeah, was the only way. Right, out, right, right, right. It's it's kind of like you know taking taking a physical uh, of oil. Right. You know, like, oh, I got to take the stock. I, I remember right. back in the day, it was always very concerning that they would a, a lot of times back when the concern was getting um, executed early. Right. You know, people would do some kind of maneuvering. It was like that doesn't really happen as much anymore because it's so liquid. Right. So and I think people there were mistakes sometimes made. And, you know, I mean, if you're short an option and some and it's trading for more than parity and somebody exercises their call, you get assigned. It's actually to your advantage. It may not seem like it, but you you just made the time value premium in that option mm -hmm. for free. <laughs> right. So it happens, but very, very rarely now. I mean, nowadays, you know, computers are pretty much in charge of all that. Oh, they're in charge of everything. And they're about to get it worse. Before we yeah. go any further, I want to mention something that, that I got an email from um, your assistant and they said that you are going to be um, providing a, a promotion. I just want to talk about it right now because a lot of people are going to probably 
here are some of the things like we mentioned, Black Shoals or execution or you know time value and things like that. And it's put to you and called away. Uh, I want to make sure that you understand everybody that's listening that there is an opportunity to get further information. So do, do you have that URL handy and in, in, you can yeah, mention? So our basic website is uh, www.optionstrategist.com. And then we've created a landing page um, for this uh, promotion, I guess. So it's actionstrategist.com forward slash DTI. Well, correction, correction. It's TDI. And I already spoke to your staff about that. So that's okay. No, no, it's all good. (laughs) Disciplined investor to to whatever the disciplined investor. So it's option. So, 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 so the core is optioned, uh, sorry, option strategist, right? Right.com slash TDI. Um, Just to be clear for everybody, it'll also be on the show notes for episode number 857 over on the disciplinedinvestor.com. All right, we set the stage. I want to ask, because I'm going to stop you a lot of times during this conversation, and I think my Mm -hmm. audience really appreciates this, Black Shoals. And that is not the the, beach somewhere, by the way. (laughs) Okay? It is not also dirty bottoms of your shoes. Okay? Um, And it is not anything to do with Dr. Shoals, just to be clear. It is a pricing model that was put in that takes into consideration a couple of basic points uh, of where is time value and intrinsic value of a, so, so how much differential between the value of the option strike price and the, 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 the uh, actual uh, where it is currently uh, as well as time and a few other things. Can you explain black Shoals a little bit for, for people? Okay. So black and Shoals and Merton were three professors at uh, MIT back in the early seventies. And they decided to create a, a model for valuing options. And uh, eventually, it depends a lot on what distribution you use, you know. Uh, so they eventually settled on the log normal distribution, which actually caused Merton to drop out of the problem. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What happened to Merton? What happened to Merton? <laughs> he disagreed with uh. Uh, But it became um, so much the standard, pretty easy to use. Even back in those days, a fancy calculator like a Texas instrument, you know, programmable calculator could do the models pretty quickly. And so uh, there's only like five inputs and it gives you back, you know, not only the supposed theoretical value of the option, but all the Greeks, the Delta and the, all those things. And so it was very useful. And then uh, in those days, even the floor traders didn't have the sheet of uh, the calculators, but they would print out these sheets. And so actually, uh, I believe Fisher Black was actually in the business of selling these option valuation sheets for a while and all the floor traders had them and everything. So um, eventually uh, Fisher Black went to Goldman Sachs, Myron Schultz stayed in academia and the model won the Nobel Prize for Economics probably 20 years later, but it still did win the model for economics. And if you look in the, even the United States tax code now, it's the agreed upon way to value options in certain situations where you need to value options for tax purposes. So it became, you know, a huge thing. And and a lot of academics went on to invent other models, but none of them ever had the cachet, I guess, of the Black-Scholes model. Yeah, clearly not. I mean, this is, this is what we go with and see, and a lot of option traders will just pick apart to find any irregularities, right, in the valuation so they could do an right. arbitrage because still, even though options are, are are much more liquid than they were, significantly much more liquid than they were back in the day, um, you know, when you first started, when I first started, the fact is there still is a bit of um, a, a, a price discovery availability, right? Right. And of course, the model depends on what you're predicting volatility to be. And of course, the volatility could turn out to be quite different from what you thought it was or what the marketplace in general thinks it is. So, um, you know, when I first started out, we, I was at the time working at Bell Labs uh, in New Jersey, and I, we thought, oh, this is great. We'll just figure out the fair value and we'll sell it if it's expensive, buy it if it's cheap. It turns out fair value is just sort of uh, a very ephemeral concept. It's not a real thing because you don't know what volatility is going to be. So you really can never figure out what the fair well. The problem with volatility, exactly. Larry, Larry, tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, but the volatility is a, is is a is a almost impossibility because what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with market volatility? Are we agreeing on that? And what market are we talking about? We talk about the stock's volatility. Is it that? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like this 
really unknown item that goes into this calculation that that really can screw the whole cal- uh, valuation model. Yeah, I mean, today's a great example. Uh, the video earnings were out today, and uh, yesterday, uh, Nvidia straddled. You know, was at the time selling for around uh, eighty or maybe eighty-five dollars, uh, and you know the stock is up one hundred and two today. So that wasn't too bad of a projection, but the broad market straddles were much cheaper than that. They were trading for forty or forty-five dollars, and the S and P, you know, is up uh, this morning over ninety. So, you know, that was a, a poor oops, guess on oops. that one. Well, <laughs> I mean, everybody, everybody, everybody is so excited about everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, even last week, last week or the two weeks, or maybe it was two weeks ago, last week, I guess last week, um, when we saw that CPI number. Now, nobody even cares about the CPI number anymore, right? It was this moment when the S&P dropped, the small caps dropped four and a half percent or so in, in the, at the lowest point of the day. At the end of the week, by the way, they ended up being up one percent. So they recaptured all of their losses. But we are right. we are an ADD market right now. Right, we can Absolutely. only focus on the squirrel that's in front of us, and uh-huh. that that obviously is computer algorithms and all that pushing, and everybody that pushes the price targets, they move crazy. Let's talk about the VIX though, and let's talk about the volatility. Let's talk about the issue that's going on right now. Um, mm-hmm. Why is the VIX at levels that are far below? Now, I remember a time was was it oh was it during Obama's years, the VIX got down to like eights or nines. Remember that no, a few I- years ago. It hardly ever goes before below ten, but it yeah it was a little a uh, little below ten occasionally, um, but then you know in the pandemic it went to ninety. So really, uh, what I think people don't quite realize is that VIX actually tracks pretty well with the realized uh, one month volatility of the S and P five hundred, and it doesn't get away from that too far because. As we just said, you don't know what volatility is going to be, but you know where it's just been. So that's a halfway decent uh, estimate of where it's going to be. So um, in the pandemic, realized volatility went up into the 80s or even 100. So VIX at 90 made sense. In the bear market of 2022, people kept expecting VIX was going to explode and go to 50, 60, 70, whatever. It never did because realized volatility was not that high. Even though we were in a bear market, the market went down 27%. It was steady. It wasn't a crash. Right. And the so, VIX is more of a of a, in, a very short-term predictor, not predictor, but view, view, view of the outward volatility. And when you get into a situation like we saw the crash in 2009 uh-huh. or the pandemic in 2020, that's when the VIX can really get going. When you got right. markets that are just trending lower, it's think of think I, I think and tell me if I'm wrong, but the VIX is it's more like the 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 frog getting boiled in a slow cooker. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. Right, uh, right. So you know, even it, so, I always and the CBOE, by the way, does publish six other volatility index or five other ones. Uh, you know, VIX is the thirty day. There's a one day, nine day, three month, six month, you know, whatever. Um, so, but it's a thirty day, and it pretty much, uh, you know, adheres to where the volatility has been in the last thirty days. It won't won't get away from that too far. So. Um- we are under the average, which long-term, I, I I think is, the number that comes to me is in the 15 range? I think a little higher maybe, but yeah. So so we're, we're low. Even even with even with the recent corrective, we haven't, haven't had a lot of corrective actions, but even with, we, we don't see any spikes. In fact, uh, it comes down very significantly. So therefore, putting that into the volatility, into the black shoals and, you know, the outward volatility yields a... Uh, more reasonably priced uh, option. In fact, what I find really interesting, though, is when you compare the calls and, and puts and you look at, um, you know, the pricing to try to even get some money on certain stocks, like Apple, people think, wow, you can get some good money on a covered call, which we'll get into in a second on Apple. There's no premium. Right. It's like, it's like ugh, what's the point of that? Right. 
So it's sort of reflecting the fact that, you know, when VIX is low, buy, option buying strategies have the advantage. When the VIX is high, obviously, selling strategies have the advantage. But VIX is low. There's an Apple VIX. It's low. Uh, so selling strategies are just not all that much in favor, even though you would think with it up, way up here, people would be interested in, you know, selling strategies or expecting high volatility. But that's not the way it really works. And mm -hmm. it's certainly not the way the fun guys, uh, fund managers look at buying Apple or anything. You know, they they like to be with the trend. I mean, everybody's buying NVIDIA today. I'm sure they're selling off a lot of more small caps. Uh, right. Know, right. Everything's okay. going in. It's like a giant sucking sound. <laughs> right. And NVIDIA is a giant vacuum cleaner because everybody exactly. thinks, by the way, just like, if I may remind everybody of something, that Pfizer and NVIDIA... Uh, excuse me, I don't know where that came from. Pfizer and, and BioNTech and and uh, Moderna were going to always be great stocks because we're going to have everybody's going to have multiple vaccines forever. Mm -hmm. Well, not everybody needs AI multiple cards in all their systems forever. Right. And I would venture to say that somewhere in the next year, Nvidia is not going to look as uh, as exciting as it is now unless something unbelievable breaks through. But right. it's probably already priced in something halfway unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, I mean, with the, with a four hundred percent increase uh, of the of the numbers. So, so uh, when we look at the uh, put call ratio, and let's explain what that is for a second uh, before you do so. Is that something that's important? Yes, I, I think it is. So, the put call ratio is a measure of sentiment. And uh, it it was in, actually invented by Marty Zweig way back in the 1950s. Smart guy, that Zweig. Yeah, and he uh, would take the volume from the ads that ran in Barron's on Sundays from the put and call viewers. Obviously, we're more sophisticated than that now, but it's it's, it's a contrary indicator. So if there's too many puts trading, and not too many in quotes, uh, yeah, sort of hard to determine. But if there's too many puts trading, the market's likely to go up if everybody's because everybody's expecting it to go down, and vice versa. So if you take the volume of the puts divided by the volume of the calls, it gives us a ratio. We can monitor this ratio. So I'm a big proponent of that. We do it with individual stocks, futures, and of course with the broad market. And and that's something that's published every day. Not you don't have to go. You don't have to wait till Sundays in Barrons. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we put we post like sixteen hundred web uh, charts, put call ratio charts on our website every day of individual stocks and various other things. But you but, look at the uh, you look at the, look at so if we take two things now, we take the VIX, we take the put mm -hmm. call ratio, good indicators of of outward volatility, concern, and sentiment, right? Right. And what about trend? A trend, that's an old one. Um, so you, you mean T-R-A-N, a trader's yeah, index? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I monitor trend. I don't think it quite works as well as it used to. Somebody told me that's because there's so much stock trading taking place in you know dark pools that you don't really see it. And, and that's the kind of thing that used to give trend. Uh, trend only works if it, registers an extreme and it just hasn't been in my opinion registering extremes in the right, right places anymore so i don't use trend too much but um so I, so now you have these these situations right you have these couple of market sentiment indicators that can give you a little bit of a directional item um what do you do with them right so interesting right now so the put call ratio has been dropping and dropping and dropping me more calls are trained. That's in the denominator of the fraction. So that makes it go down. So we're extremely overbought in terms of the put call ratio. And just uh, in the last couple of days, I've seen it start to turn over just a little bit. We'll see how it reacts after this um, NVIDIA thing today. But we're, we're not that far away, I don't think, from a major sell signal from the uh, equity-only put call ratio, which is all stock options that trade and uh, you know, 8 million a day or whatever it is. Um, so that's uh, something I'm keeping my eye on, but I'm also a big trend follower. So the trend has been up and I'm not going to abandon that until I really have to. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you had an interesting point a little while ago. You said people, their attention span is getting shorter and shorter. That's one reason uh, that some, um, even like psychologists or psychological 
analysts have said that these zero data exploration options are so popular because there's instant gratification and you don't have to wait around for a month to figure out how, how your option did. Or the other side is they can't, they can't, uh, uh, First, they have no patience. I'll give you that. It's the same thing that you're saying. Or they mm. just don't have the ability to track anything. Mm. But let's talk about the zero days because there's some – I think that has done some really strange things for the markets. For example, this is not at all scientific, my friend. Um, but my but But I do wonder if zero-day options have been changing the dynamic of going into the weekend. And what I mean by that is – uh, you know, weekends were always like, okay, there's something going on in the Middle East. People are going to sell on a Friday. Maybe, be, you know, if things just, nothing happens, Monday's a good day. Sell on the Friday. Nobody's selling on a Friday. As a matter of fact, they're, they're going at it. it it's, right. it's a strange phenomenon over the last decade, how Fridays have become almost a viable event, hoping for something good to happen over the weekend. And I think some of that is the zero day options that expire on a Friday. Right. I, I, I mean, I can't say you're wrong because you're, you're right in the fact that, uh, you know, we used to have a system where we would sell uh, spy weekly options or on, uh, on Friday for the next week. And then we would cover them either on Monday or even that Friday because they would drop in value. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. So I mean, that, right. So gave that up. Uh, even though VIX itself does kind of drop, but that's just because it's kind of discounting the weekend, you know, just the time and nothing else, no opinions. But um, the, the CBOE has done a lot of work looking at, you know, buy to open, sell to close, market makers, you know, professionals, retail. And they have just determined, I think, you know, at least to my satisfaction, that these zero data uh, expiration options are not really affecting the market per se. And in fact, in certain situations, um, it could actually stabilize the market, but uh, mostly they're looking at it from the market maker's point of view. If the market maker has to take huge hedges, that that will drive the market, you know, crazy. You know, make it you know spike or whatever. But th there's been a re remarkably balanced trading in these zero-day expiration options. People are doing spreads. Uh, maybe they're deeply out of the money spreads, but there's still spreads. So they don't have that ultimate risk of a complete, like, you know, if the market were to really crash or something like that, it's it's not going to, uh, you know, exacerbate exactly. yeah. that. But w let's talk about let's get right into a gamma squeeze here because that's where the discussion is going, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and if and if first of all, um, just like Black Shoals is not something weird. This is not some kind of a of a, a citrus uh, drink. You know, explain what what a gamma squeeze actually is. So uh, when an option changes in price with respect to the underlying stock, say the stock goes up a point the under, and the option goes up a half a point, that's called the delta. So the delta in that case is 0 0.50. Delta range between zero and one. The gamma is how fast the delta changes. And this is what the market makers are really interested in when they have large positions because they realized years ago that if you have a positive gamma and the market makes a big move, everything is good. If you have a negative gamma and the market makes a big move, that's bad for you as a, in your position. So um, the, the gamma squeeze happens when the market makers are suddenly uh, you know, in a position where they have to make big adjustments to their uh, positions to keep them neutral or to keep them out of trouble, let's just say. And I think the term probably gets overused beyond that point. I mean, I see people talk about things like gamma walls and other things like that. But it basically is that same sort of thing. If there's large open interest as you're approaching an expiration, uh, the gamma becomes um, much wilder at expiration as you near expiration. But the, so, point, the, the point, uh, um, this happened with SoftBank. Everybody knew and saw it. They accumulated huge options positions mm -hmm. way out of the money. That's where the problems happen, the way out of the money ones, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then boosted the underlying, causing the market makers to have to hedge their positions every option that was sold, right? Every call that was sold by them, bought by right. somebody else. And it was a self-perpetuating 
situation. That's where the worst grandma squeeze. This has happened a couple of years ago, but we've seen many ones of these every once in a while. Right. So whenever the market makers have to hedge themselves, uh, it, it will, it can make the market move. In that case, uh, you know, individual stocks, but in, in other cases, it's the whole market. And, you know, the market makers are really in the business of, of buying in the bid and selling on the offer as many times as possible and not taking a risk yeah, while, sure. while they're doing right, it. Right, right. <laughs> because there are still spreads available with options, whereas there's not really in stocks anymore. Right. So, yes. So they, um, so they, they tend to hedge off the risk as much as they can. And that creates these, these, uh, or you call them gamma squeezes, but you know, they're really just trying to adjust their gamma and their Delta to a situation where they're not going to get burned on the next market move. And so if, if they keep getting, you know, if they keep having to sell calls, and the market keeps going higher, they have to keep buying stock to hedge those calls that they sold. Right. Uh, usually, you know, eventually you will even out, uh, but it can take a while to get to a point of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So let's have some fun. Let's talk okay. about um, options, first of all, 101. Let's just talk about, the, the Larry, the dummies version. Talk to me about a call and a put. So a call makes money if the stock goes up. And it's a leveraged way to play that. I mean, that's really the stimulus thing. And it has limited risk. So if you buy a call for two points, $200, the worst you're going to do is lose $200. If the stock goes up 10, and your option might go up five. And so that's a pretty big uh, leverage return. So that's the advantage of buying an option. Puts are the same thing except on the downside. So if you buy a put in the market and stock goes down, the market goes down, you have that same limited risk, potential, um, you know, high leveraged uh, profit. The problem is that most people view it as a lottery ticket and buy them way out of the money, that, which means the stock would have to, let's say, buy a call way out of the money. Stock would have to go up a lot just to make your, your option worth anything sort of like a lottery ticket. Mm -hmm. and so well, usually, usually the multiplier leverage effect is much greater on that circumstance. Of course, yeah. but you know, the, the probabilities are low. So we, when we're, we do a lot of speculation in our newsletters and things, but we, we typically buy an option that's slightly in the money. So if I'm right about the direction of the market, my option is going to make money, mm -hmm. you know, right. with some leverage, just not, you know, lottery ticket leverage. Right, right, right. And a put is... Can I dare say help you with this? Exactly the opposite. Right. Exactly. So, so if the market goes down and you're on the put, you're going to make money. All right. So, uh, so now we get into some fun stuff. Let's go with something that is the next step up, as I see it, for most people. What they would do, and an interesting way to work on, let's call either partial hedging or income equity income strategies, which is a covered call. And I get a lot of questions about this one. Mm -hmm. So cover calls, let's say, you know, well, well, let's take it in the video. That'd be a good example. Say you bought in the video, you know, at 100 and then it, you know, went up a little and you thought, well, you know, I'm going to hedge this call or the stock is not really paying much of a dividend. I'm just going to, you know, sell some calls here. And then the thing goes to 600 and you've basically given away all that profit because you sold the call. So that's the downside of cover call writing, and that has become uh, a problem over the years. I mean, the market really has, except for a few blips here and there, pretty much been going up since 2009. Yeah. And, and <laughs> cover call writing has fallen into disrepute, I would say, because of that, because people sell a call, and then, then the long-term uh, holdings, the stock goes up and then you find yourself rooting against your own stock. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a stock you don't really want to sell or it's a stock of the company you work for for a long time and that sort of thing. So, well, the other we, problem, the other problem is because the VIX is low, there's not a lot of excess premium. So if I have, right. let's go back to Apple for a second. Let's just use a, mm -hmm. just a round number for the heck of it. Apple is trading at uh, one, you know, 190. And I say, well, uh, you know what? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sell a call in the money. Let's say out of the money, a little bit out of the money. So you want to give yourself a little bit of range, right? Mm -hmm. If it goes to 200, okay, I'll take it. So that's $10 I get if the stock goes up plus a dollar 50. 
Like, what's the dollar? What is that? <laughs> right. There's nothing. So, so so there's nothing on that. As opposed to if it was, let's call it $6, $5, say $5. Well, $5 now I got, well, I just made 15 bucks. I just made 10% between the upside option. Now, if you want to say, well, well, then buy it in the money or at the money. So let's say it's 190 and I say, well, let's let's take an option and cover it for three months. And I get four dollars and twenty-five cents. It's like, what? What is that? I mean, yeah. there's there's no premium. Exactly. And so that's really what implied volatility is all about. You, there are ways to uh, gauge that by looking at right now those options you're talking about on Apple are selling with an implied volatility of about twenty percent, and the long-term historical average volatility for Apple is about thirty percent. So you're selling something that's cheap. Right. Which is probably not a great idea. Right. <laughs> right, right. It's like you're saying, uh, I got to sell my car. Hey, it's worth 30000 Take it for fifteen, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So the alternative strategy, that would be to buy a put on Apple. You don't get any income from it, but it does protect your downside. So mm-hmm. that's a different concept, though. A lot of people you know, don't really feel this, the same way about that. But we have, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, we do manage... Um, some option accounts. Mostly it's in a strategy that we design ourselves, but in some cases it's covered call running. And we have a, a, a number of ways where we try to mitigate the negative aspects of cover call running. So you can still get some income, but you don't give away the entire upside because that's what really upsets people. If they you know, wrote an Apple call at 150 and now it's at 190, how do we get out of this? You know, mm-hmm. without... Uh, you might not even have the money to, right. to buy that option back for 40 right. bucks. But know? let's look at something for a second. Let's look at an at the money. So I don't even know where Apple Street, 185, let's call it. Let's go 185. Yeah. Let's do 185. Let's go out a couple of months and give me the price yeah. for the put and the price for the call. Shouldn't that be, in theory, the same? Uh, well. If it's at the money. Yeah, yeah there's with stocks, the dividend counts too. But yeah, an April 185 call on Apple is about six bucks. Right. What's the put? And the, the put is five. Oh, right. So, but you were buying out. If you're going to protect yourself, you'd probably do either one of them out of the money. Right. A little, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that's a fairly so that those options are trading with a twenty-one percent implied, which is, as I said, well below uh, average. So that would favor buying the put over selling the call in, in my mind. But, right, because you get the deal because the guy that's selling it to you is selling it on the cheap. Yeah. Right. So what about some so, of the fancy stuff, Larry? What about uh, what about well, some of the fancy names, like the, the stuff that everybody's like, at first, like, oh, I want to do these butterflies and iron condors just because yeah. they sound so cool. <laughs> right. They do sound cool, that's true. Uh, so condors. I've never been a huge fan. The condor is basically where you, you sell a put and a call, and then farther out of the money, you buy a put and a call so you don't get you know, run over if the market really makes a big move. In, in theory, you sell it for a credit, and then if they all expire worthless, you keep the credit. The problem is that uh, it hasn't worked over the years. In fact, a monster hedge fund uh, called Harvest a few years ago was um, – they were overlaying condors on a bond portfolio and all the bond portfolio guys were loving it until it blew up on them. <laughs> I believe in 2018. And uh, so, you know, I, to me, it's a strategy that, you know, it works. You make a little bit of money uh, a lot of times. And then one time you lose a lot and it might be, you know, depending how you manage it more than you can afford. So those strategies are, to me, not all that wonderful, but um, you know, we tr- we do some heads. We do a lot of head strategies. One thing we've been doing a, a bit of in recent months is buying straddles on stock options because, as we just noticed, options are relatively cheap on a lot of stocks. So uh, I don't know. Let's say again, Apple. You might buy that put and buy that call. It's eleven points. I mean, Apple can move eleven points in a couple of months without really standing on its head to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of a, a situation is more prevalent now than it, let's say, was in 2020. So, so a simple straddle, there's different kinds of straddles, right? But the simple straddle is just buying either side. 
Right, by the put and by the call, and then hope it moves far enough to make your money. Would you would you do a straddle that has different strikes? Yeah, that, that's called a strangle. Uh, sometimes, strangle. Uh, but and, it, and what about, what's yeah. the one called with time? Pardon me. Different times, different different uh, expiration dates. Oh, you mean still buying both sides? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I jump some people. Uh, I don't. I don't have a specific name for that. A diagonal straddle. Yeah, diagonal spread like straddles. Right. Str- struggles. Let's call it a struggle. <laughs> call it a struggle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's apropos. <laughs> but, but we have some fairly sophisticated ways of looking at it. And I think you know we've done a pretty good job with this. So uh, that, that works now when options are cheap. When options start to get expensive again, which they will someday, then you know the buying straddles will not be a favorite strategy. Something that, while selling options, would be more appropriate. But right now, you know, it's working. Right. So, so what's not working in the option world? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, one of the things <laughs> that I that we used to be able to do a, a lot of was look for a heavy option volume and try to you know, it looked like a rumored takeover. And a lot of times it was right, but that doesn't seem to work too much anymore. They don't even have, uh, now that you mention it, Larry, the uh, Nigerian brothers, those option dudes with the ponytails. Mm-hmm. Uh, John's been on my show many times. I don't know what happened to them, by the way. They disappeared into the, the moonlight. Um, yeah, but, I'm not sure either. But they used to do unusual options action. And we were right. always like, bullshit. Bullshit, <laughs> you know. Come on, seriously, right. and especially because you can, you can jam an option, and use it. Uh, for example, you're a hedge fund, right? And you jam an option. Why? Well, you're just doing it for protection on a hedge on something, right? Or you're trying to get out of a position, and you know you're going to take the stock down, so you don't want to necessarily get whacked on both sides of this. And right. you don't know where the attachment of that option is. As a matter of fact. Can I just break for one second and go back to the days of Madoff? <laughs> okay. Madoff used to use a very, quote unquote, simple strategy that it was his that utilized options. Was so far so good, right? That was okay. it. That's what he did. He used a, he used some kind of a cover call option a lot. The fact is that I went back and I looked and I, at the time when Madoff was active, I always said, wait a second. And he had to use the newspaper back then and the, and the weekends in the library. I don't see the options volume anywhere where it needs to be for the kind of money we're talking about. Mm-hmm. How is this happening? Which it never did, by the way. You know, you got right. a lot of, oh, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't happening. But but the point was, that was easy for me to, me, you know, a, a kid at the time, or more of a kid, um, going to, honestly, the weekends, looking at the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, uh, uh, business page, Barron's, all the things, you know, the Investors Business Daily, all the things that you would utilize, you know, the spread at the library on the Sunday, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right, right. Um, and, and you'd kind of like go through this and you'd be like, uh, I just don't get it. And, and the point, though, is that if you want to hide stuff or add stuff or manipulate stuff, not all things are what they seem is what I'm saying. Right, and, absolutely. And and, when, and you know, even if it's honest, you don't know what the other the guy has on the other side. If you see he's buying a lot of puts, he he might actually be buying a lot of stock at the same time. Yeah. He really wants to start to go up, not down. You right. don't know. And he's just protecting as he's as he's building a position. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Uh, you know, I agree with that. But there was a time when takeovers were sort of discernible that way. Then the SEC got involved, said, you know, started finding you know, people and going back and looking at time and sales and, you know, throwing a few people in jail. And that sort of ended that. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's always, a, that's always a, a way to, you know, disenfranchise those people that are doing illegal things. <laughs> right. <laughs> Put them in jail. Well, right. let, let's kind of go to the, um, the Russell 2000 and what you're seeing there in terms of comparative uh, breath issues, I guess, probably we could bring up. We could probably yeah. bring up, um, you know, the 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 Mag Seven or the the Sassy Six or, you know, the, right. the Freaky Five, whatever the number you want to use. Um, what's happening in this in this in this whole area of smaller caps? So basically, this year we've seen new highs in the S and P. We've seen new highs in Nasdaq 100, new highs in the Dow. 
but they're reflective mostly of what you just mentioned, the Magnificent Seven or whatever you want to call them. But the, the you know, broad market, uh, Russell 2000, which is comprised a lot of smaller stocks, is basically struggling. Its high was made two years ago, and it's not even coming close now. And, you know, you that's, that's a negative. That's the kind of thing, though, that doesn't necessarily uh, give you sell signal. It just, like, gives you a warning. Like, pay attention here. Don't get complacent, that sort of thing. We've seen it with breadth. Breadth has not been nearly as good as it should be on this uh, move to new highs by the major indices, but it's reflective of that same thing. These 2,000 stocks, you know, 1,800 are struggling. <laughs> Only 200 are really doing well. And the S&P 500, the top, the top stocks are, even though it's capitalization-weighted index, the top stocks, or most of the, that capitalization. So if the top stocks are doing well, everything is good in the S&P 500. Um, we, we also monitor uh, cumulative volume breadth. In other words, how much advancing volume there is versus declining volume. That's been giving uh, some warning signs too. But again, it's just a divergence. It's not, I would say, not a direct sell signal. Direct yeah. sell signals are still things like the put call ratios or breaking support on an index chart or something like that. But these negative divergences um, are building up. And so eventually it's going to be a problem. It's just, so, so it's funny you mentioned that, you know, I have uh, someone, you know, uh, I'm sure, you know, a, a Tom McClellan. I had him mm -hmm. on about maybe three weeks ago or so. And he, right. we were talking about all these, these divergence uh, signals that are, to be used, he made it very clear that in his work that they're 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 alerts. They're not uh, button pushing mechanisms. Exactly. You know, yeah, there's something to just acknowledge. That. And when they start adding up, when you have a lot of them, and then you see the turn. So, for example, you know, do you want to sell a stock on the way up? Well, uh, you know, somebody I had a discussion the other day is why would I buy a stock at an all time high? I'm like, well, in theory, I got you. I'm with you. I understand, right? I mean, why why would you want to buy such an expensive stock? Because all of us talk about buying stuff on the cheap all the time, right? But you got that differential between value and growth. And, you know, value is value because value is value. Maybe. Growth is growth because it's growing and doing its thing. Growth breaks every once in a while. Okay. But the fact is that, you know, if things are still peachy and hunky-dory, you don't necessarily need to get out you know, if you want to lighten up, if you want to be concerned, if you want to get ready, be prepared. Okay. I think that's what you're saying, right? You know, the divergences right. aren't automatically like, all right, signal. That's a difference. Right. I mean, you know, you could even say, you know, VIX being so low is dangerous. Well, yeah, eventually it could prove to be dangerous, but you really have to wait for VIX to start to go up before you go short you know, on the market. You can't just short the market because VIX is low. That is a, that's a losing right. strategy. As you pointed out years ago during Obama administration, even uh, the Trump administration, you had some very low years of VIX. You know, not every year, but there were some really low ones. And you would not want to be short the market while VIX so, is just staying low. So you've talked about the VIX several times. You brought it up to me. So what I'm hearing is that you believe that the VIX is still a viable instrument to guide you from the aspect of, obviously it sounds silly, but market volatility and sentiment. Because a lot of people, a lot of people don't. Right. Well, I think they're not looking at it properly, but um, yeah, I think we're, we're, we stopped, for example, we stopped using VIX calls as a hedge right now because they're just too expensive for what you get. And, there will be a time in there during 2020 when the market collapsed during the pandemic, VIX calls were the best hedge in the world, being long a VIX call because VIX goes way up when the market goes down. But when VIX is just behaving normally, that, those things are pretty expensive and you waste and, a lot and the of decay money. Is, and the decay is tough. Yeah, exactly. So, but I do think VIX is, there's nothing wrong with VIX. And so I, do, you, do you remember the, um, uh, every time we talk about the VIX and every time I talk about the VIX a lot, I'm, I'm I hearken back to that dreaded 
Vicks implosion, implosion, that after hours would have blew up some of those Vicks ETFs. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, that was fun. So we had written articles that, that that could happen, you know, the previous year. And we were actually uh, long VIX calls at that when it happened, uh, because at that time they'll set, they set up properly. But, you know, it was it was one of those things where people that were doing the opposite, they were buying that XIV, which is the inverse VIX uh, ETF. And they figured, you know, you couldn't ever lose on it. It had gone up for quite a long period of time. And then it uh, that one day, I believe it collapsed from like 100 to like 10 or something, mm-hmm. you know, which was opposite of what you, you're describing. But, you know, then people put a name on it. They call it Balmageddon and all that. <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. But it was it was uh, foreseeable. So, so we, we did write about it before. And by the that. way, I think we would be doing a disservice, and I think you're going to agree with me, if we didn't discuss the VIX ETFs and how god-awful they are. <laughs> right. They're not to be used. You want to, you want to hedge with VIX? Get yourself an options account or approval from your account for options, and you want to use it for, I don't know what you want to use it for, but whatever you want to use it for, whatever the reason is, do that unless maybe for a short period of time, like a day, maybe you want to use the ETS, but otherwise those things are, they're, they're, they're so dead. They can't be resuscitated. Right. So there's, I mean, we probably don't even have time to go into the whole problem, but they're all, you can't trade VIX itself, but you, so you're forced to trade the VIX futures and even VIX options are really options on the futures. And the farther you go out in time, the less responsive those things are to what's happening, but they do decay. And so if you really want to trade VIX or you want to use it as a hedge, you need to stay short term and just keep rolling it over, rolling your products over and over. Eventually, when the move happens, you'll be in on it. Those ETFs and those things like that are basically subject to a huge amount of time decay. And so they just lose money all the time while the market's doing nothing. And then eventually, you're, you're right, there'll, there'll be that one time where they're spurred up. And uh, so you can't just, I would say, you can't just short them and stay short, you know. But uh, I called it the big short ah. after the big short. <laughs> yeah, that was unbelievable. That was just unbelievable. Crazy. Yeah. Larry McMillan, we covered a lot of area, a lot of territory, a lot of uh, ground with regard to options. I want to thank you, as always, for your wisdom, your 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 ability to explain some of the hard discussion items and things that are, don't make sense to most people because they're upside down and backwards. Some of this stuff, right. You know, we are selling a, how do we sell something that we don't own? How does that work? You know? So uh, probably takes a little bit more. I would encourage everybody to please go over to Larry's site, check out what he has over there from an educational standpoint, as well as a strategy standpoint. Again, we'll put the link directly on the show notes on the disciplineinvestor.com episode eight. 57. But if you want, you can give them that URL again. Oh, it's optionstrategist.com forward slash TDI. TDI. That's right. And is there something, spe- <laughs> what do they get there? They get something special? Yeah. So you can uh, get a discount uh, on our, new- our main newsletter, the Option Strategist newsletter, which is in its 33rd year publication. And then you can wander around the site. There's a bunch of other stuff on there, including free volatility data and things like that. Um, and then other things, of course, you can pay for. If yeah, you well, want. <laughs> please do, please do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, keep keep uh, warm up there in the north part of, right. of the countries. See you soon, Larry. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye. And another episode is in the can, as they say. In the uh, in, it went well. It's it's in the tin can, if you will. That's an old phrase from the movie business. And uh, I want to thank you for joining me. And again, be here next week for another great guest and some other ones to follow up as well. Check out the disciplinedinvestor.com. Make sure to get Larry's special offer that will be on the website on the show notes for episode number 857. So make sure to do that as well. Anything you need from me, just uh, give me a holler. Go over to the, the site there that I just told you, disciplinedinvestor.com. Click on the Ask Andrew, contact us, and it'll come right through. And we'll uh, figure out how to get the best help for you and uh, help you with your situation. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'm Andrew Horowitz. I'll see you again soon.
Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 